Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Where is Brandy Hall, her last 24 hours. Uh, You know, it's strictly circumstantial, but perhaps what's interesting about this is uh, that Randall goes to deal with this equipment the very morning that he was due in court and informed Jeff that he would not be going to court. And at that time, informed Jeff later, a short time later, that he was actually going to his house to deal with this piece of equipment that would have been something that is still at Brandy's house that she would have still been currently using for jobs. And she never told you why she was leaving. No. I guess, yeah, that's confusing here. It is very confusing. You know, and she didn't tell you who she was going to meet or anything. No. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Torres, and welcome to the fifth update episode of Murder on the Space Coast Season 3, Where is Brandy Hall? Her last 24 hours. I'd previously told you about an unsuccessful dig for Brandy's remains on the property where she was living when she went missing in 2006. I say unsuccessful because she was not found, but others would argue that at least now there is one less place to speculate about. For Brandy's mother, Debbie Rogie, who can't hide her sadness through her brave smile or cheery eyes, it was yet another disappointment. But at the same time, can a parent truly hope to find their child's remains? That would, after all, mean Brandy is dead and gone. And that's still, 13 years later, hard for Debbie Rogie to accept. Here she is just moments after the heavy machinery filled in the holes after the dig. I don't know how I feel. I thought we were going to find her. But at least one thing, I still got hope that maybe she is still alive. That's one thing I can hold on to. I guess it wasn't in God's plans for her today. It's heartbreaking nearly every time I see Debbie. And while she says that she still holds out some hope that Brandy is alive somewhere, I have to believe that deep down she knows. Everyone has said Brandy would not leave her kids and the amount of Brandy's blood found in her submerged truck leaves little doubt. Here is Brandy's attorney, Ron Ecker, recalling when he first learned Brandy was missing. I was was at a Brevard County Manatees baseball game, and I got a text from another lawyer, and it said, have you heard from Brandy? And I said, no, not in about a week or so. And he said, well, she's been missing. And he told me what happened. And the first thing I said, "Are, are, are the kids gone? And he said, no they're here. And I said, 
or he might have said Jeff has the kids. I don't remember exact quotes, but uh, as soon as I knew she was missing, the kids were here. I, I've always assumed the worst. Now, I told you last episode that I have been privy to some of the plans police have as they work to determine their next step in their search for Brandy Hall and their pursuit of her killer. And trust me, they have a pretty good idea who is responsible. I told you that Palm Bay police had teamed up in an unofficial way with private eye Nick Sandberg, whose close examination of Brandy's last 24 hours have led to some new theories, people to interview, and places to search. I asked Palm Bay Police Sergeant Jeff Spears what he could say about some of these other locations. When you're dealing with uh, somebody such as Brandy and the other people of interest in this case who are uh, well-established in Palm Bay and the south end of the county. So when you have people that grew up here, like Brandy did and uh, Jeff did and Randall did, you have these people who are very familiar with this area, who travel all over, and we know through our intelligence and through our investigation that they did go to multiple different places. So it makes it difficult when you have so many places in an investigation to check into that if we can, as you put, cross one off our list, it's definitely helpful. Now, police have already done some groundwork on some of these other places they intend to search and dig. Here is some audio from that field work. I was fortunate to have been invited along. The first clip is Spears talking with the ground-penetrating radar technician, and the second clip features the cadaver dog handlers talking about possible locations. And then here's some... Um, so here's kind of what it's looking like from the drone photos. So that, that's that house I was telling you about. There's some area here that, that has opened, and then you kind of see where there's these little trails here. But all the dog alerts were right here, where this, actually it looks like, right where this little sinkhole is. That sinkhole is where mom was digging. Oh yeah, this is where the primary dog alerts were, primary, secondary. Those clips were from areas that still need to be more thoroughly searched. Now I have to tell you that everyone was pretty gung-ho the morning of the dig in Brandy's old backyard. But only a few hours later, many had a tough time hiding their disappointment. Still, for someone like Sergeant Jeff Spears, who was in high school when Brandy went missing, and who, like Nick Sandberg, the private eye, is a Palm Bay native, the resolve to see this through to the end is encouraging. I spoke with Sergeant Spears the day after the dig, and he told me he was confident the case would be solved. It would only take a little more time, he said, and then chuckled, realizing it's already been more than 13 years. Here is Sergeant Spears a few days before that unsuccessful dig. You know, luckily, this case is, is moving forward, and that's a good thing. Whether, you know, we find her when this dig happens or we find her in a couple months, um, you know, my, my biggest goal, my philosophy is that we, we work every case until, you know, there's nothing to work. And with this case, there's things to be done with it. And I think it proves that that's happening now with what we have in place. And we want to just keep moving in that direction. And, and hopefully we can find her and bring closure. We, we've taken a special interest in our cold cases. We, we do have some cold cases that, uh, well, we, want, we want to solve all cold cases, but we have some that um, we want to really look at again because there may be some things that are missing or there's other people involved. And 
this case, you have uh, Mr. Sandberg, uh, the private investigator, who is doing a lot of work behind the scenes to, to help bring some closure to this case. So in the last year, we've taken a closer look at this case. We've tried to pick up on it a little bit. We've uh, reassigned this case to a different detective and uh, just trying to get some new eyes uh, involved and seeing what we can do that may be missing that um, we haven't checked into yet. And then obviously taking a look and following up on the leads that we're getting from uh, Mr. Sandberg. And so that's what brings us to present day is that uh, we've done some look into trying to find her whereabouts and trying to figure out if we can actually locate Brandy and, and bring closure in that way. And uh, so we have some things planned here in the near future that we're, we're hoping that uh, is fruitful and successful. Um, but, you know, we're still running hard with the case. You know, we, we still considered it an active case in our eyes, you know, and, and following up on leads and, and looking into things that we can re revisit that will help us out with the case. Hey, if you like investigative journalism like this and what we do with our free podcast, Murder on the Space Coast, please give us a five-star review on whatever app you are listening on. And please consider a digital subscription to Florida Today. The cost is less than a cup of coffee per month and would go a long way to ensure we can keep doing this. Just go to floridatoday.com backslash 321 murder or call 877 424 0156 and use the promo code 6 8K to receive a special offer exclusively for podcast listeners. Don Bowles was a hard hitting investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic in the 60s and 70s. But if the name rings a bell with you, it's likely because of one thing the way he died. He's been working on a series about the Mafia. Today, as he attempted to start his car, a bomb went off. But there's more to the story of Don Bowles than his murder. And more than 40 years after his death, we discovered cassette tapes of his phone calls. In those tapes was a story that haunted him until the day he died. A story that Don himself will help tell. Until they say, don't write them kind of stories no more, I'm going to be right in there. I'm reporter Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering, Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Our new podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com launches with two episodes on Tuesday, November 5th. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. One of the first things Sergeant Spears has had to do is educate himself about the case, because he had previously never directly worked on it. In fact, it's had several detectives overseeing it over the years, from Ernie Diebel to Mike Pusateer and others, who, like Diebel and Pusateer, have either retired or moved on from the Palm Bay PD. And with the passing of Brandy Hall expert and retired detective Sid Ledow, it means there is no one left at the department to really ask questions of regarding the early days of the investigation. There, there's, there's hope. There is definitely hope, um, and there has been for this case, but it is one of those where... There's been a lot of people involved in the case, some that are no longer employed here at the agency anymore. And so when you either get a lead or when you get the time to actually start looking at the case, it becomes almost frustrating because some people aren't here anymore. And so you're trying to figure out what they did or what they know about the case. And then you, as the investigator or the supervisor of the investigator, 
you want to make sure that you're knowledgeable with the case and you know what's going on with it and what has gone on with it. So um, there, there's, there's still definitely hope for the case. It's just that, unfortunately, as time goes on, the, the memory almost of what people have done and what they know about the case, it almost kind of slips a little bit. And obviously, technology has changed a lot with reporting software. So the, the reporting software that we have now was not in place when this case came about. So there's, there's a, a lot of parts that you know, really want to sit down and, and take a look at and really wrap your head around how the initial investigation happened. Because a lot of that, those first 48 hours, is crucial in any, in any right. case. And so that's what you really want to understand. You really want to get a grasp of those first 48 hours of when she went missing to what they did in those hours after. Right, and it's, you know, I think it's easy to criticize police, but those first 48 hours you had someone come in and, you know, absolutely just lie to you guys, and then her husband is in jail and he's not talking, and so you're not really, you know, sure. I mean, there was a lot of obstacles early on yeah. in this case, right away. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's yeah, you know, typical, you know. Yeah, and every every case is different, and and you have to be prepared to handle those obstacles, you know, with as as they come. But it definitely is frustrating when you have a lot of people involved, and you have other crimes that are happening with those same people. Obviously, like you said, the husband, Mr. Hall, was in jail, and. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there are different obstacles they have to overcome, and there's always learning opportunities in each case, and this was definitely one of them. Yeah. Okay, so where does the case stand exactly? I mean, are the police able to build a case and make an arrest without a body? Advances in forensic technology have made it easier for prosecutors to go for murder convictions in cases without a body. However, it remains rare. I mean, really rare. We've never had one here in Brevard County, at least that anyone in the state attorney's office can remember. I recently asked Private Eye Nick Sandberg if he thought it was possible to build a case in the event Brandy's remains are never found. It is. It's all it goes about what you find and how you articulate how you found it, uh, along with the evidentiary value of what you find. It has been done. I would much rather find a body in this case. Um, I think that's going to help most definitely um, in, in, in perceiving how, how Brandy died, uh, along with anything else that's pulled out of the case to, to link to Brandy in the manner of that death. That is, is grave in, in, in prosecuting an individual. But I did find a former prosecutor, Tad DiBiase, who in January 2006, eight months before Brandy went missing, successfully prosecuted the second-ever no-body murder case in Washington, D.C., and then he took a keen interest in the subject. These days, he consults for free with law enforcement agencies and prosecutors on how to build a case without a body. I gave him a ring to ask him about his experiences and to speak in generalities about this case and how hard it would be to build a case without finding Brandy's remains. Murder case, the body itself is the best evidence of the crime. The body-
body can tell you how the murder happened. Was this person strangled? Were they stabbed? Were they shot? The body can tell you where the murder happened. If you find a body in a home and there's blood everywhere, you know the murder likely happened there. Uh, if you find the body in an alley or outside or in a field, the murder may not have happened there, but you can draw some conclusions about where the body was actually found. Not having the body um, causes a huge problem when you don't have those things. Not having the body means you can't tell exactly when the murder happened because when you do have a body, you can draw a lot of conclusions about when a murder happened. Did it happen an hour ago? Did it happen 36 hours ago? Did it happen a month ago? Did it happen 10 years ago? When you don't have a body, you don't have any of these very basic facts that anyone faced with a murder case, which are difficult cases enough on their own. You don't have any of that basic information when you don't have the body. So that's what makes these cases such unique challenges for police and prosecutors. Well, without without seeing the evidence um, in this case, I obviously can't, you know, comment. And sure. what I always say in these cases is there's probably always more evidence um, that the police and prosecutors have, although there may be some evidence um, that points to someone else as well. What I will say is over 50% of all no-body cases are what I would call domestic cases. Typically, husband kills wife, boyfriend kills girlfriend, husband kills ex-wife, lover kills other lover. Those are very common in no-body murder cases because they're domestic homicides. They happen between two people in close confines when there aren't a lot of people around, which is why you also don't, you know, have witnesses. You also see in some of the things that you've talked about what is also very common in no-body cases, particularly in the domestic cases, where you have this relationship between two people as represented by texting, and then, boom, all of a sudden it stops completely. Well, that's obviously very suspicious because... If that person is not responsible for the death, they wouldn't stop texting, obviously, right? They would continue to say, well, where are you? Why aren't you responding? At some point, they stop. I found his insight on witnesses who lie, such as in this case, to be particularly eye-opening. Check this out. And then the fact of um, someone telling a lie um, when being investigated for murder, um, in my view, is very damning. And, and actually, it's something I lecture to police and prosecutors about that as, you know, I was in um, law enforcement for 12 years as a prosecutor, and, and typically a homicide detective is going to be an experienced detective. And in those professions, you're used to people lying to you all the time. I used to tell my, my children when they were little, they would say, what did you do today, Daddy? And I would say, well, I sat at my desk and people came and lied to me because that's so much an element of what we do. So we get very jaded in law enforcement by these lies, and what we have to recognize is that a juror in non-law enforcement takes these lies much more seriously because why would somebody lie about something as serious as a murder unless they were somehow you know, involved in it? And there can be other explanations. Married people may not want other people to know that they're having an affair, mm. and that's understandable too, so you have to take that into account, particularly in a case like this where it sounds like you have married people on both sides. Um, but on the other hand, um, you have to usually try and come up with what's a good reason why someone would lie about something other than a murder if they were involved in the murder. So I'm constantly telling police and prosecutors, you have to take those lies seriously because we're very used to them, but a jury is going to see them as much more damning um, than we might because we're used to it as, you know, that's, that's kind of how we spend our days being lied to. Now, speaking of lying, I brought this up during season three of Murder on the Space Coast and... <laughs> 
nobody really seemed to have an answer. But I've always wondered why Randall Richmond was never charged with some sort of obstruction for lying to cops. Is it too late now to hold him accountable? After all, he's admitted to lying. Remember, he told police on Friday, August 18, 2006, after Brandy's truck was found in a pond, that he had not spoken to Brandy in weeks. Two days later, he changed his story to say that he had spoken with Brandy and that she told him she was leaving town and not to try and contact her. As I have reported, records show that Brandy and Randall texted and called more than 50 times per day and more than 80 on the day she went missing. What effect Randall's lie had on the police investigation, we will never know. Here is Private Eye and a former police officer, Nick Sandberg, on the subject. I would, I would think it is too late now to build an obstruction. I mean, I think that's something that really needs to be done with at the time that you were able to see that somebody had lied in a situation. Um, I, I can't state the reasons why they didn't do that, um, but, you know, I think it would have needed to have been done back then. So it's, I don't believe it's possible to move forward now with that, nor would any attorney, state attorney, touch that probably with a 10-foot pole at this point. 13 years later. Now, I did broach the same question with Sergeant Spears, and he was less quick to dismiss the notion, saying he planned to go back and watch the recorded interviews Randall gave that weekend to see exactly what was and wasn't said. We all want to know what's next. There are several other obvious places that police want to search. And one of them, well, was also a place I mentioned during Season 3 the pond where Brandy's truck was found. Remember, her blood was found inside the truck and one of the windows was open. In 2006, a portion of the pond was dammed up and drained, but the remaining part was searched by divers. Now, I've been to this pond, and let me tell you, the water is black. The bottom is muck. Now, I know it would be a logistical nightmare to drain that pond and go in with a backhoe, but I always felt that was something that they needed to do. Again, at the very least, if she's not found in the pond, then it's one more place to cross off the list. Well, it looks like this is finally going to happen. Um, as I said in the beginning, you know, I was going to take this case on and do it exactly like it was my own uh, from the beginning and go through everything. So one of the circumstances that I want to check into is where the um, truck was left in the lake. So with the truck being left in the lake, that's one of the things that I want to search avidly uh, and correctly. Um, so uh, I, th I think that would be a good starting point for the next uh, search uh, to look for any more clues um, to actually drain the whole lake instead of just a portion of it and uh, not to stir it up or dump dirt. And everybody says that they drained half the pond. And to be honest with you, John, they didn't drain half the pond. They drained maybe a fifth of the pond. Where they positioned a dump truck load of dirt to be dumped is only just a little section of the water that was taken out to go into the others. Um, just, just amazing that, you know, the divers, I mean, you look at dive notes and stuff, they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. The waters were so black and so murky. You know, and I imagine throwing piles of dirt in there as well, which was 25 feet from where the truck was recovered also made visibility horrible and especially if you're looking right there in that area trying to uh, find evidence and basically these divers are searching a lake that's longer than a football field probably two football fields at that matter and basically they're going along the bottom just patting their hands along the bottom to see what they feel 
I mean, that lake needs to be drained, the whole lake. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be cheap. To make that happen, Nick Sandberg has opened up an account to raise money for equipment like underwater drones, radar, etc. Um, we started a fund at the uh, Navy Federal Credit Union. Um, if you go there and ask to deposit into the Sandberg & Associates, the Brandy Hall account, um, funds will go into there. It will be used to utilize for items that can be used for the searches, um, down to purchasing equipment, uh, needs of personnel searching. Um, anything that is left over with that is going to be donated to basically the reward monies for the tip line um, to raise that reward for tips coming in that can lead to an arrest of an individual. And actually, since that interview, Nick has made it easier. You can go to his website, sandbergandassociates.com, and click on the Brandy Hall tab to make an online donation right there. The last time I checked, the reward tip money is about $10,000. So, I thought we would have some closure to the Brandy Hall story here, but it looks like we'll have to wait a little longer for that. Please trust that I will continue writing, reporting, and fighting for justice in this case. And as always, I will keep you informed with update episodes as the news warrants. And again, thank you for listening. If you have any information as to Brandy Hall's whereabouts, please call 1-800-423-TIPS. That's 1-800-423-8477. Calls are anonymous and are not recorded. To subscribe to Florida Today, please visit floridatoday.com backslash 321murder. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to whereisbrandyhall.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thank you for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today a part of the USA Today Network.